As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. National security experts debating whether the U.S. has sufficient throughput capacity to back Ukraine, Israel and possibly Taiwan in a simultaneous and extended conflict scenario. The unanimous and emphatic answer from experts is no, which underscores the likelihood of a period of fiscal dominance in which deficits are mostly disregarded and interest rates must adjust to a higher equilibrium. Dalip Singh, the chief global economist and peach in fixed income, joins us right now. Dalip, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. What a difficult time. I'm going to lean a little bit on your experience in the administration along the way in this conversation as well. Paul Tudor Jones caught up with a regional business news network called CNBC in the last 24 hours. You might have heard of Paul. I'm not sure about the network. Dalip, this is what he had to say. He said he's never seen this kind of geopolitical tension in the last something like 50 years with the deficit position, the budget position of the United States this week. Dalip, how important is that? He's right. The backdrop is we've returned to the most intense period of great power competition in at least three decades. Uh, that's going to mean more demand on fiscal spending to shore up our sources of competitive advantage. Uh, and, you know, it's also it's also the reality that we're, we're seeing a surge of yields driven by term premium because bond investors, they don't know whether we're going to grow fast enough, whether tax revenues will be high enough to service a rising cost of capital. They don't know whether other buyers are going to show up at auction and they don't know whether Washington, D.C. can exert enough fiscal restraint if growth falters. And that's why you're seeing this repricing. It's a very challenging time. Dalip, you wrote this uh, this column that we found fascinating and we've cited quite a bit about the lack of price insensitive buyers really questioning the ability for the U.S. to borrow at some of the rates that they were accustomed to in the past. Can you just bring that forward to today's moment with increasing calls for military aid? How much does that actually make you double down on this idea of borrowing regardless of where rates are in order to finance national security and other concerns? Well, Lisa, here's how I synthesize what's going on. There are three fundamental dynamics. What's the Fed's near-term reaction function? What's long-run neutral? And what's the term premium? 
And then you have to overlay the impact of the attack on Israel. On the Fed's reaction function, I think Lori Logan said it best, and we have a higher term premium, a higher term premium, all things equal, implies a softer economic outlook and greater likelihood that the policy rate has peaked. Okay, on long run neutral rates, I think what we're seeing you know, with payrolls and, and lots of other evidence is that something really positive is happening on the supply side of the economy. That's how you can get above trend growth alongside disinflation. So long run neutral rates are going higher. Then you have term premium. We just spoke about that. The balance of risks are still moving higher. If the house is in disarray, that means no durable fiscal consolidation is on the horizon. And therefore you have a durable risk of a supply demand imbalance. The Fed is no longer showing up at every treasury auction. Neither are large overseas buyers to the same degree, either because their savings balances have fallen or because they want to diversify their holdings. And now overlay the impulse of the attack on Israel. It's another injection of uncertainty. It's another potential supply side shock on energy prices. And the net of it for me is you do get a higher drift in long-term yields with an anchored front end. So based on what you're saying, Talib, do you think that the move that we've seen, barring the past couple of days, in longer term yields makes sense or that it's not high enough or that it's gone a little bit over the board? Well, I mean, in the I mean, Anne-Marie said it right. Right now we're in the in the thickest fog of uh, a hideous and tragic war. And so we're seeing a flight to quality on the back end of the curve. But I think over time, as market participants think through the second and third order effects, uh, the, the forces that I mentioned are going to cause a drift higher. And, and the front end, I think that's where I have the most conviction at this point. I think the Fed has said now with a chorus of, of officials, uh, we're going to let markets do the work for us. And if the data continue to, to moderate, both on growth and inflation, we can watch and wait. Dilip, I just want to finish on a potential policy response. And this, I think, involves your experience in the administration. What kind of sanctions response should we be looking out for? as a team for the investors listening to this program right now, what would you expect to see from the administration, the White House in the coming weeks and months? Well, I mean, uh, the leading edge of any response from the administration, if it proves necessary, will be in the military realm. That's why you see two aircraft carriers moving to the Eastern Med. That's why you see all of these efforts uh, to shore up Israel's Iron Dome. There will be a sanctions component because money is fungible to the extent that Iran is seen as directly directly involved in the planning and execution of the attack, I think you'd see the screws of tight, the screws of sanctions tighten. That would be a global effort. But but that's that's second order to the military response. Dilip, much has been said about the sanctions response and the fact that perhaps this administration turned a blind eye to Iranian crude production and perhaps Chinese buying off that crude. What's your view on that? I, I disagree with the premise. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of hype about the six billion dollars. Uh, the the administration's spoken pretty clearly. Not a dollar has been has been sent to Tehran. I would be shocked if a dollar ever moves uh, to Tehran in the aftermath of this attack. Uh, and and so, you know, th- there is going to be, I think, less and less Iranian crude oil on the market. The question for the administration is, can they get an offset? from Saudi, uh, from other sources, from domestic producers. That's going to be the challenge. So, Dalip, you just said that you think that refreezing that $6 billion is pretty much a certainty at this point. Is there a potential ramification? Does this have any kind of play into uh, some of the accusations of using a dollar as a weapon or any of these talks that have really uh, flared up a couple of years ago? 
I, I don't I don't think so, Lisa. I mean, if we're talking about uh, the barbaric invasion of Ukraine or this hideous attack on Israel, uh, there have to be there have to be consequences. And when you stop short of deploying your military, um, economic tools are the are the second best resort. So that's that's what we're seeing. I don't think it's a threat to dollarization. Uh, we're going to move with our allies, and we're doing so to uphold the principles that underpin peace and security across the world. That's uh, that's good for the world. That's good for for financial markets. That's good for the economy. That's what these sanctions do. Dalip, don't be a stranger. It's great to catch up with you, sir. Hopefully, we can do that again soon. Dalip Singh, there of Pigeon Fixed Income. Joining us now is Judy Norman, the UCR Centre on US Politics co-director. Judy, wonderful to hear from you. Allow me to offer you the chance to answer that question. Is that a distinction without a difference? You know, I do think it's important to differentiate on this. And it's interesting to me that Israel in particular is being very cautious to pin blame directly on Iran. Again, Israel and the U.S., have long known that Iran has funded Hamas, has provided much of their weaponry, et cetera. But this operation does look to be different. And again, importantly, I think a um, a direct pin on Iran would escalate the region uh, very quickly. This wouldn't just be Israel and Iran as two states. It would also include all of Iran's proxy groups, Hezbollah, proxy groups in Iraq and elsewhere. And so it could just blow up very quickly. And I think both the U.S. and Israel are aware of that. And one of their goals in these coming days is going to be containment uh, along with, um, you know, retribution and deterrence. So that's that's on everyone's mind right now. It doesn't mean that um, that Iran is not going to uh, to play into this. Um, but I think for the short immediate future, um, cooler heads are trying to figure out where exactly to place the blame and act accordingly. Judy, walk us through the tension in that statement, the words that you just used, almost a contradiction between retribution and containment. Are those two things compatible? Well, I think this is going to be a real challenge over the next uh, few days, the next few weeks. On the one hand, of course, Israel wants retribution for these attacks. They want uh, to deter um, a broader conflict, as does the U.S. But at the same time, you're trying to contain, again, the conflict, as we just spoke about, from spelling out, um, whether it's in the West Bank and Hezbollah or throughout the region or just over the long term. And you know, John, Israel is going to be, if they do launch a ground offensive, it's going to be very difficult. Gaza is a very highly populated urban area. You would face mass casualties for uh, for Israeli military personnel, for Palestinian civilians, which we're already seeing, and of course, the dozens of hostages that are being um, held in Gaza. So this would be very tricky. It's also very tricky to just oust Hamas as a group. Um, and it's very uh, tricky to know what would be next for Gaza. So I think the road ahead is going to be challenging for Israel. We've seen these, um, you know, I would say Israel-Palestine has become almost emblematic of the term cycles of violence with um, different kinds of, of acts of retribution that then lead to more uh, more acts and, and unfortunately civilian casualties on both sides. So that's the reality of the situation and it's a very tough needle to thread. Julie, given all of that, what do you make of the discussion of John Kirby of the U.S. talking yesterday about Qatar actively trying to negotiate some sort of hostage release, something that could maybe de escalate in the way that you're talking about. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see Qatar's role in this. We have heard these reports of some kind of negotiations around hostages, at least around women and children and elderly, some kind of a negotiation that might happen there. You know, Qatar has uh, been an important uh, intermediary, I would say, 
between the U.S. and Israel and groups that they can't or won't negotiate directly with. And I think we're going to see that playing an important role here. Um, again, this question of the hostages is very uh, much in the forefront for Israel and how they coordinate any kind of operation. It's also very much obviously in the minds of, of the U.S. and other countries that, um, that have their citizens uh, being held there right now. What are the red lines, Julie? Do we have a sense of, as Israel plans the incursion, the potential ground operation in Gaza, is there a sense of pressure being placed on Israel to show restraint in certain areas from the U.S., from other allies, as well as from Middle Eastern partners like Saudi Arabia that had previously been discussing with Israel? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think we heard from Biden yesterday a um, a very committed U.S. Uh, response to Israel. You know, this uh, you know, we're, we're with Israel and and really not setting any red lines at this point. We're hearing different messaging from the EU, from European partners and allies, and of course from within the region. You know, calling on Israel to stay within the bounds of international law, within the bounds of kind of rules of war and these kinds of things in terms of proportionality and, and targeting of civilians. So I think this will be an ongoing. Um, conversation. I think it's it's a very difficult one. I think many feel a lot of aversion to talking about both sides, whereas others feel it very necessary to um, to, to grieve for, for the civilian loss of life uh, on, on both sides of this border. Judy, when you hear numbers like more than 1,000 civilians, and then we have conversations where we talk about a proportional response, what on earth is a proportional response to what took place over the weekend? Yeah, I think many in Israel will be asking that. And again, I think um, this has been, again, a situation that unfortunately time and time again has played out in the Middle East and is this in this Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, you know, over the decades, we have seen different kinds of atrocities that, again, are then met with a response that um, you know, also results in civilian casualties that then uh, just escalate uh, for many this kind of long-term security challenge of, of then getting more people involved in resistance and whatnot. So it's a very challenging uh, path, I would say, morally as well as strategically for Israel as they try and balance what might be short-term necessities and uh, responses with what might be real long-term strategic thinking of what does this mean for the long run and what kind of future are we setting up uh, if we um, if, if we respond in a way that just um, fuels this conflict even further. Julie, thank you. Thank you for your insight. Julie Norman there at the UCL Center on U.S. politics. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
someone who's been tracking uh, the sort of push-pull between inflation and potential weakness around the edges is Torsten Slock, chief economist at Apollo Global Management, who puts out charts that we cite pretty much every single day. And Torsten, I just want to thank you and your team because we always use them as uh, talking points and hot topics. So we appreciate that. But I want to start with your, imp your impression of a reacceleration that we're starting to see on the margins in goods prices. I think what's most important really here is it shows how difficult it is to get the horse back in the barn when it comes to inflation. You think about first goods inflation went up when we were sitting at home ordering stuff online during the pandemic. Then goods inflation came down when the supply chains came back on steam. And now, as Mike was just pointing out, it looks like goods inflation is beginning to reaccelerate because manufacturing is beginning to show more signs of life. And you have, broadly speaking, therefore, a separate cycle in goods inflation relative to the cycle in services inflation, where initially, when we were sitting at home, there was no service inflation. Now we're all going to restaurants, hotels, basically flying consumer services, and that's why service inflation has been very high. What we so that cycle difference has been a very important feature, and it shows in the data also today. What we did see, though, uh, during the immediate aftermath of the pandemic was that people weren't as sensitive to price increases because they accepted that inflation was happening and they had huge bundles of savings that were left over from the pandemic. Is now different? Are you seeing consumers push back, spend less, not actually spend when they see prices going up that much? Well, if you look at what was the distribution of consumption on goods and services before the pandemic, we have not normalized back to that level in terms of the share spent on services relative to the share spent on goods. We still spend, quote unquote, too much on goods. So that means that services still has some more upside so you're right, people have been willing to spend more money to go to Taylor Swift tickets, US Open in Queens, all these things that have been so expensive because there have still been savings around. But as we all know, and as we talk about all the time, we of course have this issue that savings are running out combined with student loan payments coming back. All that does point to still more weakness on the consumer in the coming quarters. When you put charts out, especially on that savings rate, how much pushback do you get from people? Because everyone is so uh, discerning of the type of data and the way that it's being framed that a story painted with data can be dissected in five different ways by five different people. That's right. And I think that's also why it's not only about savings running out. It's also about the very big picture that the Fed is trying still to cool the economy down. We hear that also from Mary Daly here in the segment you just played, where we are seeing already in the data, consumers are seeing higher delinquency rates on credit cards and auto loans. Corporates are seeing default rates go up on high yield and on loans. We're also seeing interest coverage ratios starting to dip, both for investment grade and high yield. And also on the banking side, we're also seeing a slowing in loan growth in the weekly data from the Fed, both for large banks and for small banks. So taking consumers, corporates, and banks combined, the Fed is succeeding. This is exactly what the textbook would have predicted, that we're seeing a slowdown on consumption, on corporates and on banks, and that's why this ultimately will result in more slowing over the coming quarters. More slowing and recession. More slowing is not the same, right? And there's a question of how much slowing is necessary to truly put the horse back in the barn, as you say, to use your analogy. And this has been one of the conundrums that's been baked into the market. Do you have a sense of whether it requires a greater slowing to get that horse back in the barn than people are currently using as a base case? And when I say people, I mean Fed officials. I do think that we need more slowing because core PCE today is 3.9, and the target for the Fed is that it should be 2. So we are still running around after the horse out there and trying to get it back into the 2% range, and we are just not there yet. That's what literally every FOMC member is telling us. So with that backdrop, 
Given what's happening to delinquency rates for consumers, given what's, I mean, default rates for high yield are going up at the fastest rate in the last six months in years. So the result of that is that we are seeing the effects of the Fed tightening. Every single day, there are companies that cannot get financing. There are consumers who cannot buy a new car, and at the moment, who have a hard time buying a new home. So in that sense, tighter policy with the Fed funds rate at five and a half is way, way above the two and a half percent where the Fed in the dot plot thinks we should be in the long run. So policy is working exactly as the textbook would have predicted. It's just the savings making it take a little bit longer time. But we are moving towards, in my view, a faster slowdown, what the market's consensus is expecting. We're going to put the horse back in the pasture and leave that uh, alone <laughs> for, for the remainder of our time. But I do want to know uh, why we are seeing upside surprises to the economic data in such a significant way if there is this material slowing. I mean, this has been one of the conundrums for so many people who are expecting and seeing anecdotally all of the slowing, and yet each economic print coming in stronger, stronger, stronger. There are some exceptions to that. I know the labor market obviously is surprised to the upside on the headline, but if you look under the hood, you see that particularly in terms of job openings, peaked literally in March of 2022 when the Fed started raising rates. That's been coming down. You're also seeing the work week coming down. You're also seeing wages for job switches coming down. You've also seen an increase in percentage of permanent job losses. So a number of the labor market indicators under the hood are showing more signs of weakness, and we are definitely moving towards that we will ultimately get that increase in the unemployment rate that Jay Powell has talked about. Given the unrest in the Middle East, there's a lot of focus on oil prices and what would happen if oil prices do uh, have a sustained rise. How do you factor that in to your concept of a harder landing than people are certainly accept? Uh, yeah, no, accepting? that is certainly a very important point. I mean, oil prices, now they first went up and now they've gone down a bit, but it's certainly the case that the, the move in oil prices is very critical also, in particular, of course, for headline inflation. So from that perspective, the second round effects are likely going to be more limited, at least historically, they have become more and more limited over time because the economy is less sensitive to oil prices, is less energy intensive. But the short answer to your question is for headline inflation and therefore also for the Fed, it does become important what oil prices are doing. When we shake out, where are you, where is your thinking in terms of the long-term neutral rate and how much it shifted upward given some of the uh, paradigm shifts? I think that there are some very important arguments for why the long-run rate is going to be higher. We first of all have more deglobalization, more segmentation globally. That's putting more upward pressure because of onshoring or reshoring and friendshoring, increasing cost of production. We also, generally speaking, have that energy transition is going to be costly. That also is going to to put upward pressure on the production of energy, and therefore if people pay more for energy, including the adjustment cost, then that will also be putting upward pressure on inflation. And finally, we likely also have globally less immigration. And if that's the case, that also means that we're likely to going to see higher cost of production, not only in the US, but also in Europe and abroad. So the conclusion is, both deglobalization and also energy transition and also what might be happening with immigration all argues for that the long run rate, neutral rate, is likely going to be high. The Fed says that in the long run will be two and a half, but we could be up closer to three, maybe even three and a half. And that's very important for anyone planning with a long horizon because that's telling you that on page one in the finance textbook, if the risk-free rate is going up, we all in financial markets need to pay attention. Torsten Slack of Apollo, always wonderful to get your thoughts. Thank you so much for being here with us. Savita Subramanian, head of U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy, has a job at Bank of America. <laughs> joins us now. No. Savita, good to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. Good to see you. Constructive. And I read your note from the other week that this can work. We can see equity returns in a higher rate environment. So do, do lower rates hurt us or help us as well? Which one is it? 
So I think that lower rates are, I mean, I think there's too much focus on the short end of the curve. I okay. think the long end of the curve probably matters more for stocks. And then when I think about, you know, why the long end is moving higher, one of the reasons is supply, demand, you know, there's less demand from the Fed and China, BOJ, et cetera. But there's also this growth story that you could argue for, which is the idea that companies are now focused on, you know, what they should be focused on. So, so we're in an environment where I think a lot of the um, the levers for margin improvement from kind of lower quality sources like globalization or cheap financing are behind us, but ahead of us is this very exciting new theme which we haven't you know, talked about for a long time, which is efficiency, productivity, replacing labor with, you know, more efficient procedures, be it AI or automation, et cetera. So I think that those are the, the drivers that could move the market higher from here. Now, what's interesting is that so far, this whole AI theme has only been rewarding tech. And I think that the, the story is so much broader than that. So, you know, based on our quant work, we've found that if the S&P 500 has the opportunity to become even labor lighter than it is today, that translates into stable margins and a bump up in the multiple because investors are willing to pay more for efficiency gains than just low quality, you know, Fed money plus a little bit of globalization. Are you saying that the AI boom has maybe been priced in accurately for tech companies, but inaccurately priced for the rest of the complex that will benefit uh, in just a significant way? That is a much more eloquent way of saying what I just <laughs> said with many less words. Um, but but I do think that that's the idea. Is the, you know, we're so far we're in this environment where it's like old economy is terrible. Don't buy anything that's not tech. We're going to get money from this AI theme. I think the idea here is that old economy companies that are labor intensive have more tools to get labor light. And what we found in our, you know, in our quantitative work is that companies that become labor light always outperform companies that don't. And it's kind of an obvious point, but it plays out in the data. Part of being able to get there and to survive long enough to get there yeah. is to be able to make investments, which requires money that Capital. potentially you have to borrow. So it raises a fundamental question about at what point the rate structure makes this prohibitive for some yeah. of these yeah, old yeah, economy yeah. companies to come up to the new world. What's the tipping point? for yields where it starts to matter really significantly to you? For, yeah, for the S&P 500, I think we can see higher yields. And I guess the good news is a lot of these problematic companies with floating rate risk and that are unable to handle current rates or, or higher rates have dropped out of the S&P 500. So there's been this sort of natural attrition out of the S&P into the Russell 2000. What I think is really interesting is that twice as many companies have fallen from the S&P to the Russell than have risen from the Russell to the S&P compared to an average year. So that is telling us that it's basically a story of the losers dropping out of the index into other indices. I don't love the Russell 2000 right now. I think it's riddled with you know, small cap zombie companies like healthcare tech, companies that can't handle this rates environment. But I think the S&P 500 has seen a lot of those problem stories drop out and it looks pretty healthy you today. You love the equal weight, right? I love the equal weighted S&P 500. That's my, that? well, I just think that the, you know, as you pointed out, Probably a lot of this good news has been priced into the mega cap tech cohort, maybe even overpriced into the mega cap tech cohort. Everybody owns these companies, so there's not a lot of buying pressure if you think about who's next to, to load up on, on the Magnificent Seven. But there is a broader array of companies that actually look pretty healthy. 
And if we don't go into this, you know, hotly forecast recession that we're all preparing for and bracing ourselves for, I think that the, the market could rip from here. The equal weighted S&P could rip. It could here. rip. What kind of upside is rip? So, <laughs> yeah, it's all relative, right? Um, so, you know, I think that what we're forecasting through year end is 4,600 for the S&P. I think the equal weighted S&P could do double those gains. So from here, it's not that demonstrable. Wow. But I think over the next 10 years, Buying the equal weighted S&P 500 today on a valuation basis suggests that you could get more than 10% price returns per year from the equal weighted S&P. This is not an environment where a lot of other asset classes promise 10% returns plus additional dividend yields. What I'm doing technically though is stripping out the muscle of big tech. Yeah. And relatively speaking, giving say financials a bigger presence. Do I want to do that right now? So financials is a tricky one. I like financials. I like large cap financials because A, the banks have already been regulated. B, a lot of the bad news is behind us. C, there's got to be a shape of the yield curve that helps the banks. And what's interesting is that every phase of the yield curve has been cast as bad for banks. I think we're actually moving into an environment where, you know, uh, uh, if the Fed is closer to being done on the short end and the long end is potentially higher for longer, that's historically been a good environment for lending. Um, I think the banks also have a, the opportunity and old financial companies have the opportunity to get less labor intensive, which is bad for me, but it's good for margins of, of financial companies. So lots of levers that I think are underappreciated, as well as the fact that if if financials, if regulated banks are regulated utilities now, why don't they have the multiple of a regulated utilities company? Is your view predicated on the idea that we're really not going to get much of a recession? Is this basically predicated on the Fed's view of the world? It's Well, this is predicated on the idea that the reason it's taking longer for the Fed to control this economy is that a lot of that leverage risk has been taken out of consumers and corporates and moved to public, the public sector, the government balance sheet, and the Fed's own uh, asset base. And while that all sounds nerve-wracking and terrifying that we're sitting on, you know, levels of debt to GDP that are similar to emerging economies, what we found is that high levels of government leverage are not anathema for stocks. So this is interesting because I've always been like kind of worried, like in the background about this looming debt to GDP for the US and what's it gonna do to us? It seems really awful, leverage is evil. The truth is the market actually outperforms or does better during periods of a higher leverage ratio in the public sector than lower. So leverage in the public sector isn't necessarily what we need to worry about. Maybe it makes our bonds that much more less attractive, which you know I think US treasuries might be the riskiest asset class. We can have in the this world. conversation for a long time. I wonder Sorry. if that's, yes. that's, that's associated with coming out of bottoms in the economy and that's when yes, the deficit exactly. is widest. And, and we grow our way out, exactly. Sure. Peter, thank you. It's thank good to see you, you as thank always. Sabita Subramanian there of Bank of America. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, I'm so pleased to say, to give us a lot more light than I certainly could shed. Bloomberg's Alex Steele and Julian Lee uh, joining us. Alex, I want to start with you. Why is this deal so important? So first of all, $59.5 billion is nothing to sneeze at, uh, an 18% premium for a pioneer. This is an enormous deal. And the broader context is that this could potentially unlock shale, what people are calling shale 3.0, which would be a huge wave of M&A, big deals, big spending in the Permian, and really long laterals, which is the basically the te- technique that you use to get a lot of oil out of shale. And that would be a very different place than we were in just a few years ago, where it was very much reducing capital spend. Interestingly enough, many analysts say that buying Pioneer is being CapEx sensitive because it actually longer term will cost less than having to increase CapEx to keep production even level, much less growing, funnily enough. There's a question about whether part of the reason why now this deal is happening is because regulators will be more okay with it, that actually this is going to be more amenable to both investors and to uh, regulators because of this emphasis on energy independence Mm -hmm. and this idea of uh, just generally focusing a bit more on the need for fossil fuels rather than the move away. Yeah, you know, I I, I see it twofold. I think, one, it is going to have some antitrust issues. I think this gives a lot of fodder to the Greens in D.C. to say you're spending $60 billion on fossil fuels. You're spending, you know, $17 billion in the next few years on carbon uh, solutions and low-carbon solutions. So there's that part. Um, But in terms of kind of why now, I wonder, and I'll ask the CEOs this in the next hour, um, is this actually a Scott Sheffield thing? So Pioneer Natural Resources is like the holy grail of the Permian. Scott retired once, then he came back because they didn't like the CEO at the time, and he's retiring at the end of the year. There's also been some productivity questions for Pioneer over the last two quarters. It just basically means you've gotten all the good stuff out of the rock. There's more there, but the really juicy stuff has been drilled. And can you really get more out? Many say that that problem has been solved, but still, a productivity question. There was underperformance over the last few months of Pioneer versus its peers. And I wonder, if, I wonder, and I'll ask it, if that played more of a role. I'm wondering, Julian, from your standpoint, where the U.S. plays in the global oil sphere and how much deals like this and just generally looking for more efficiency and, frankly, record production this year plays on the global stage at a time where Saudi Arabia is trying to control supply that much more. Yeah, I mean, you know, the U.S. is certainly playing an important role and and growth in uh, output in the Permian and and other shale basins is going to be important. Um, I don't think this this deal sort of changes the outlook for oil prices in the short term, um, but potentially over the longer term, uh, it may do. It it certainly, uh, I think, brings together... um, contiguous acreage, you know, acreage next to each other under a single owner that allows for uh, longer horizontal wells to be drilled, uh, greater economies um, of, of scale uh, in terms of, of uh, that 
investment in new drilling that could uh, boost the, the prospects for uh, Permian production and US production uh, in total. But that's probably two or three years away at least. Um, in the short term, I, I think it, it doesn't change anything. But what it does do is mean that, that the, shale, the shale basins of the US are going to be important contributors, uh, not just to production, but to potential production growth um, in the four to five years ahead. Julian, from your vantage point, how much are deals like this made possible based on oil prices being higher and if you have the feeling that they are going to remain so in the longer term? Well, I think, um, you know, there, there are many things, I think, that have, have factored into this deal and, and why now. And I, I think, uh, uh, as Alex said, the, you know, the, the Scott Sheffield question is, is certainly uh, potentially one of those. Um, as to, to oil prices, I mean, at the moment, uh, they are very much being dictated, I think, by uh, Saudi Arabia's oil policy. Uh, they want oil prices somewhere uh, closer to $100 a barrel than, than 70 for example. Um, and they are prepared to make the production sacrifices at the moment to ensure that happens. The big question is going to be over the longer term whether they can continue to do that if demand growth uh, starts to ease off as people are expecting next year and we get additional supplies coming on from places like uh, the US, Guyana, um, Brazil. Um, and so that's going to be a challenge for Saudi Arabia perhaps over the next 12 to 24 months. The immediate question um, is how um, this, this terrible attack by Hamas on uh, Israel is going to play out. We saw a, a jump in prices followed over the last couple of days by uh, something of a retreat. Very much is going to depend on whether uh, this conflict spreads and starts to suck in uh, oil producers in the Middle East, um, Iran being the, the big question mark. Alex, your idea uh, just in terms of the pricing and how that factors in. Yeah, so uh, one analyst said that uh, Pioneer has 6,300 net locations of high-quality inventory. That's like top-tier acreage where you get a 10% return at WTI prices 50 or lower. So like the last barrel produced may increase. Like you might need $80 a, a barrel for that kind of floor, but you're buying stuff that you can make money and have a nice return sub 50. Which is the reason why I think Huge. people are doing this. Alex, what are you hearing in terms of other deals coming down the pike to either compete with this or just that have been in the works and suddenly people are finding uh, the reason to get it done? So it's going to have to happen because if you're a mid-tier player, you will not be able to compete with this. So the oxys of the world, uh, you have Chevron, like they're going to be just fine, even though they're dwarfed a bit by, by, by this deal. But the smaller guy, I don't know how you're going to do it. And there's a lot of small mom and pop uh, private companies as well that have already been kind of pulling back on some of their drilling and the theory is they're doing that so then they can clean themselves up a little bit to then be bought so we'll see how quickly it takes for that to happen and just real quick here julian uh, and not to pivot too much but i would like to get a final word from you on what you're hearing out of iran and how much further crackdown of sanctions would really influence the price well i mean we're, we're hearing relatively little out of iran i mean there's been uh, you know, political support voiced for Hamas, as, as there very often or, or generally is from Tehran. Um, we're not hearing anything uh, yet about um, action against uh, Iran uh, or any action to try to 
restrict their oil exports. We've seen um, a, a fairly substantial increase in estimates of production and exports over uh, recent months. That's been an important factor um, in holding oil prices uh, lower than they would otherwise have been. And there is a challenge here um, that if you start going after Iran's um, oil exports, that is going to have an impact on the oil price. Yeah. Um, and nobody wants higher oil prices in, in the consuming countries. Julian Lee, Bloomberg's Alex Steele, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.